Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, State of Taiwan Studies, a roundtable discussion on methods and directions at the Fairbank Center. Uh, good morning to our participants in this uh, sweltering heat uh, for those of us on the east and uh, maybe some on the west coast. And uh, good evening to uh, a lot of our friends in East Asia and Taiwan, especially. Uh, I know that uh, many of you ha all, ha all have been working from home and are still getting used to the rhythm of uh, all these online events. Um, but uh, trust me, you'll, you'll get the hang of it soon enough. Um, the goal of this workshop is really to bring together um, past and present fellows from the relatively newly established uh, whole family Taiwan studies program at Fairbank to have a discussion about the state of affairs and future directions in Taiwan studies. And as you'll see, I think most of our panelists are quite bullish uh, of interest recently uh, on Taiwan, but come from quite different perspectives and thus offer a sort of a variety of visions when it comes to developing the field. Uh, even though our panel today by chance uh, is a sort of a uh, bit biased towards the social sciences, uh, we hope that our presentations today uh, will spark uh, great interdisciplinary conversations. All right, to, just to start things off a little bit about myself, uh, my name is Kevin Luo and I'm currently the whole family fellow in Taiwan studies at Fairbank this year. Uh, I'm trained as a political scientist at the University of Toronto, uh, where my dissertation focused on comparing land reform, state building, and authoritarian rule uh, in Taiwan, China, and beyond. Uh, joining me today as panelists were all some point in time fellows at Fairbank here, or soon to be fellow in a Lev's case, and I'll introduce them in order of our speaker lineup today. So first, we have uh, Huang Zhaonian, uh, Zhaonian Huang, currently an assistant professor at the Graduate Institute of Development Studies, uh, National Zhengzhou University in Taiwan, and uh, our inaugural uh, fellow in 2016. Uh, he received his PhD in political science from National Taiwan, uh, uh, sorry, PhD in political science from the University of California, Riverside, as well as an MA, MBA in political science from National Taiwan University. He investigates the impacts of China's rise on media politics and press freedom in Taiwan and other countries. He is the author of The Political Economy of Press Freedom, The Paradox of Taiwan versus China from Routledge, and a co-author of uh, China's influence and the center periphery tug of war in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Indo-Pacific, edited by Brian Fong, uh, Jiaming Wu, and Andrew Nathan, uh, also from Routledge uh, last year. Next, we have uh, Yang Ziqiao, uh, Lawrence Ziqiao Yang, uh, assistant professor at the Institute of Social Research and Cultural Studies at the newly uh, coined uh, National Yangming Jiaotong University uh, and last year's uh, fellow here. Uh, he received his PhD from UC Berkeley with certificates in film and media studies and critical theory. Uh, his research focuses on propaganda media industries and aesthetics in modern China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. His broader research interests uh, cover war and militarism, theories of materialism, and the industrial technological histories of cinema, architecture, 
and urban infrastructure. At NCTU, he is also developing a new project uh, on China's Belt and Road Initiative propaganda and its influences on media production of Southeast Asia after the 2010s. Uh, he is also currently completing a book manuscript titled Speculative Statecraft, Logistical Media and the Culture of the Chinese Cold War. And then after my presentation, we have our newest fellow uh, starting next year, Lev Nachman, uh, who just recently received his PhD in political science from the University of California, Irvine. He was a Fulbright Research Fellow from 2019 to 2020 and held an appointment as a visiting scholar at National Taiwan University from 2020 to 2021. His research is focused on the domestic politics of contested states with a particular focus on social movements and political parties in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And then to help us wrap things up, uh, we have Wang Xu. Uh, Dr. Xu is a political scientist specializing in comparative judicial politics with a regional interest in East Asia. Trained in both law and political science, she studies the, role, the politics of the legal profession in varying power settings, particularly the political roles of lawyers and judges uh, in the advancement and after the retreat of authoritarianism. Her current book project focuses on Taiwan and Hong Kong, and also has a side project on China's cross-border impact in the legal sector. Currently, Dr. Xu is a postdoc fellow at the Research Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Ministry of Science and Technology in Taiwan. She's also the holder of the Chu Research Fellowship in Taiwan Studies at Oregon State University in 2020 and 2021. Received her PhD in political science from the University of Toronto uh, and an LLM from UC Berkeley. So with that, we're going to start the panel. Uh, each panelist is going to speak for about uh, 10 to 15 minutes, uh, followed by comments from our discussant after the four panelists. Uh, if you have any questions, please save them until later after uh, discussing comments. Uh, we'll have a Q&A section then, uh, hopefully beginning at around 10.30 to 10.40ish, running to about 11. Uh, you can uh, type in your Q&A questions in uh, the box on your Zoom uh, right on your right-hand side below. All right, with that, uh, Zhao Nian, do you, uh, kick us, you can kick us off. Sure, sure. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for your introduction. Uh, so just to make sure, uh, could everyone see my PowerPoint slide? Yes. Yes or no? Yes, great. Yes. Okay, great. All right, so let's just get started, right? Uh, it's my pleasure uh, to be part of this round table. Uh, I'm happy to meet some old friends and new friends here. And I believe we may have chance to chat later. So right now, uh, if possible uh, to save time, uh, let me just start my presentation. Okay, of course we do Taiwan studies, uh, of course, because we want to understand Taiwan. We want to uh, explain the changes in Taiwan, maybe in terms of politics, uh, economics, social, and cultural. 
and so on. However, it seems to me that uh, Taiwan studies is not only Taiwan studies, but also geopolitical studies. I believe we cannot understand Taiwan well if we don't understand geopolitics, if we don't put into consideration some external structural factors. Uh, this is largely based on my work. Uh, this picture uh, is one of the origins of my worldview. Uh, it could be found in our high school geography textbook. So from this picture, uh, we know Taiwan is basically located between Eurasia Pratt and Philippine Sea Pratt, right? So the island of Taiwan uh, actually gradually created uh, for a long time by the convergence extrusion between these two pratt. So that's the reason why we have so many earthquakes, uh, so many high mountains in Taiwan. Similarly, from a geopolitical perspective, Taiwan is also located between land power and sea power. So basically you can see Taiwan always caught in hegemonic confrontation between these two sides. For example, during the Cold War, it's between communist camp and capitalist camp until today still between China and United States. So it seems to me, Taiwan is vulnerable to geopolitics. So changes in Taiwan are very likely to be external induced. At least when we try to explain changes in Taiwan, I believe it would be good to put into consideration some external structural factors. So based on this worldview, I would like to talk about my research experience. Uh, I face a challenge uh, when I try to study the press freedom in Taiwan. Uh, this is because what I want to explain is domestic changes in Taiwan. That is the evolution of press freedom in Taiwan. However, what inspired me the most uh, is international relations theory which include external structural factors uh, that I believe pretty useful. However, they are too far away from domestic outcomes here. Uh, so it's hard to make linkages between international changes and domestic, uh, domestic changes. So to fix this challenge, I try to find a way to bridge the gap between external causes and domestic outcomes. I believe it's important to pay attention to the actors in the middle and their behavior, their action. Uh, it's because I believe uh, these people in the middle, they play a role to serve us just like a link between international label and local label, such as capitalists, uh, state leaders, multinational corporations, uh, some social actors, NGOs with international connections. I found this middle range approach may help to find the middle ground between abstract theory and empirical practice. So we are more likely to propose a hypothesis or argument that is observable and testable. And second, this approach may also help to find the middle ground between international level and local level. So we could do process chasing 
to find causal linkages between external factors and domestic outcomes. Moreover, this approach may also help to find the middle ground between structure and agency. So we are likely to tell a more balanced story, which I believe uh, would be more close to the reality. So here I would like to take my own research about Taiwan's press freedom, for example. Uh, in a pretty simplified way, uh, I try to explain the change from underdevelopment to improvement. So we know the basic geopolitical condition was under the structure of Cold War, United States would like to ally with Taiwan to confront with the so-called communist camp, including Soviet Union and China. So under this situation, United States provide military support economic support to Taiwan, even if Taiwan did not put into practice political reforms. However, starting from 1970s until 1980s, we know the geopolitical condition change. Uh, the United States started to try to ally with China to confront with Soviet Union. So under this situation, Taiwan's geopolitical status declined. United States government started to express concerns about human rights conditions and political reforms in Taiwan, and even urged Taiwan to put into practice uh, uh, some neoliberal economic reforms. So here I try to take KMT's that it is as people in the middle. Okay, so the basic finding is uh, that elite did try to make up for the loss of international legitimacy. So they try to do something at home, try to make some changes at home. So in order to enhance their domestic legitimacy and then use this domestic legitimacy to make up for international legitimacy. But finally, to ensure the support coming from United States. So that's part of the reason why Taiwan's press freedom improved after 1980s. Uh, my study also tried to explain the degradation of Taiwan's press freedom uh, after 2008. So we know the basic geopolitical condition was starting from 2000s, China started to repress the United States uh, to be Taiwan's largest export target and investment target. So under this situation, Taiwan largely economically depends on China. Okay, so here I took media capitalists, uh, uh, businessmen, as uh, people in the middle. So I not only focused on propaganda media, like Wang Wang China Times, United Daily News. Here, I also talk about some pro-Taiwan identity media, uh, such as Formosa Television uh, and Sunli E Television. Uh, I found this media started to do self-censorship when they report Chinese sensitive topics like Tiananmen incident, Falun Gong, and Tibet issues, something like this. So because this media would like to maximize their business interests, they want to sell newspapers, TV dramas to China. They want to receive embedded advertising fees coming from Chinese authorities. They also want to rely on uh, their business in the Chinese market even rely on subsidies coming from Chinese government. Okay. So that's the reason why Taiwan's press freedom degraded after 2008. 
By the way, similar situation not only happened to Taiwan. Uh, in recent years, uh, it also happened to many other countries. Uh, for example, inter uh, international media uh, like New York Times, Washington Post, had ever accepted advertising fee coming from Chinese official media to publish inserted column called China Watch. Another example is some internet companies, uh, social media companies uh, like Yahoo, Google, uh, at Facebook, these companies were required to do censorship in China and even to share their users' information, their users' data to the Chinese government. All these companies would be prevented from entering the Chinese market. So under this situation, international society, international scholarship started to raise concern about China's rights and its impact on our liberal ways of life around the world. So they propose theories like authoritarian diffusion, sharp power, and so on. However, it seems to me far before this, uh, Taiwan study scholars already proposed some ideas like China Factor, uh, China Impact Studies to study China's influence operations, uh, including a so-called local collaboration mechanism, uh, again, we could see people in the middle deserve attention and analysis. So this also leads to another point I would like to make. Uh, that is, Taiwan is not only vulnerable to geopolitics, but also sensitive to geopolitics. Uh, so Taiwan may be one of the first cases in which geopolitical changes can be observed and testified. So Taiwan studies may have advantages of theoretical innovation, theoretical development, and empirical application. So theory based on Taiwan experience may apply to other countries in the future and may have potential to contribute to international scholarship. Uh, that's all the points I would like to share today. Thank you. All right, so thank you, Zhao Nian, for your excellent presentation. Um, I, uh, Lawrence, are you ready? Uh, sure, yes. All right, so uh, next up we have Lawrence. So go ahead, you can share your screen. Uh, let me, all right. All right, does it show? Yep. All right, okay. Uh, so thank you for, uh, thank you for in inviting me for this uh, round table on Taiwan study with uh, my dear Hope, uh, current and incoming and fellow Hope fellows. Uh, thank you, Zhao Nian, for pointing out the geopolitical pressure between external structure and internal outcome. Uh, in my sharing, I hope to further this line of discussion um, geopolitics by highlighting the entanglement between geopolitics and media industry. And in specific, I hope to highlight uh, how the study on film and media histories not just passively represent the changing geopolitical reality where Taiwan is in, but also allow Taiwan to be thought as a highly mediated area of study between the global north and global south. So, uh, <clears throat> sorry. 
So in the couple of past couple of years, uh, my training uh, has been in mostly in film and media cultures histories. And my own research has pretty much been defined by my inquiry into the notion of media. And more general, the idea of mediation in state-sponsored propaganda culture, uh, especially in the KMT regime during the Cold War. And the term mediation can mean, <clears throat> sorry, and the term mediation can mean a couple of different things for different disciplines, but a quick look at the etymological root tell us that the mediation can mean uh, such as intervention, agency or action as a mediator or intermediary, or a, divi a division in the middle, uh, to echo Johnny's term in the middle, to, to cut in half, to half, or simply the middle. Or as my title of the talk shows, uh, in media rest, uh, Taiwan in media rest, in the middle of things. In the study of narrative or in the or, or literature narrative, in media rest usually means the protagonist enter a story role, a story narrative where things have already, 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 uh, always already been happening. So it's in the middle of things, you're interrupting, you're entering a theater or storyline. So in other words, the protagonist here, I mean, uh, Taiwan is, can be both part of the story world, but also always already excluded from the beginning of a narrative. So seeing Taiwan as an area of study in media, in media rest or in media rest has both the spatial and temporal connotations, uh, especially as John pointed out, the island or island state is, is and will be constantly caught up in the middle of uh, continental and sea powers, uh, land powers and sea powers, as the, as the contested side among different imperial states. In terms of time or temporality, Taiwan is also caught up among different developmental or expansionist teleologies, be it modern China's nation state building or imperial Japan's gradual expansion of the co-periphery sphere or US empire's strategic containment or competition in the so-called Asia Pacific or now, now Indo-Pacific. Well, in short, Taiwan as a geopolitical and cultural area to be studied itself is already a highly mediated historical process. Uh, so this recognition of Taiwan as both an outcome of geopolitical mediation among empires or Taiwan itself as the medium, as a kind of a medium or a meme, a tool by which power, imperial, uh, imperial powers create ge geopolitical map leads me to the, another thorny question, which is the question, the question about the South or Taiwan's relation with the South or Southeast Asia here. So Taiwan in media rest, in the middle, in the middle of space and time, in the middle of things, with its, all, with, with its always already belated inter, into the theater or it's already, already, always already unfinished narrative or incomplete state of affairs with its always ambivalent and awkward state of being, manifests probably most clearly in its relationship with the so-called the South, be it the South and Southeast Asia and, or uh, the buzzword global South nowadays in general. And for some of us, the term South might automatically evoke different waves of, of Southern policy or or the new Southbound policy or Xinanxiang. Uh, beginning in the 1990s, or or from its earlier focus, uh, from its earlier 
focus on outsourcing labor and surplus value exploitation to the recent policy with a more stronger emphasis to generate a more equal change of cultural economy. So, but on the other hand, cultural critics of cultural uh, critics, uh, cultural critics from the generally the self-proclaimed left would or would voice such opposition. However, that that all this talk about the southbound or the toward the south uh, is is replicating an earlier colonialism, an earlier expansion expansion of colonial powers in the neo-capitalistic uh, logic, and instead these critics would, especially in the cultural studies, in the field of cultural studies, in the field of cultural, cultural history, uh, they would favor another self-to-self -self connection uh, that was sort of inspired by this so-called legacy of the Bandung Conference, the Wanlonghuiyi in Indonesia, and argue that Taiwan's position as a semi-peripheral semi state is, has always been, always been complicit with the empires of the global north, uh, such as the Japanese empire in, uh, before the war and the US during the Cold War. So this is nothing but a reenactment of a new kind of colonial uh, capital, capitalistic expansion. So in their, in their kind of discourse, or China plays a much more benevolent role, not only in leading the first Afro-Asian non-alignment movement in the, four, in the 50s and 60s, uh, uh, but also now leading a new China model of de development through its Belt and Road Initiative and AIIB. Uh, so the legacy of Bandung, ironically, uh, for many of us, is now recycled as a good story, a good narrative, or even a mythology to reconnect China with the good old friends across Africa and Asia in China's expansion for new markets and alternative supply chains. Taiwan, once again, in media rest, is left out in this, moral, this morality play or in this moral story. Despite the fact that one of the earliest theories of Taiwan independence, such as Liao Wenyi on the upper right, was also a welcome participant at the Bandung Conference as the representative of Taiwan or the Republic of Formosa. Uh, Liao Wenyi was later, uh, not only was Liao Wenyi uh, welcome at the Bandung, Bandung Conference, he also later attended the newly independent Federation of Malaya in 1957 and met with Malaysia, uh, Malaya's first prime minister, uh, Tunku Abdul Rahman. This is by now, this by now ignored connection uh, between the Formosa, the Taiwan and the South, this South to South connection. led me to, to a broader research question in the search of film and media history of Taiwan, which from the first glance, uh, whether in the Cold War or in the colonial period, the film and media history of, of film and media industry seem to be highly complicit as part of the empire's propaganda in their expansion to the South. Uh, and they would use cinema, they use radio, they use photograph, either as, as propaganda message and as a technology or as a com commercial commodity to sell to the Southern market. So as a scholar uh, working on film and media propaganda, however, I'm still very eager to ask, is it possible to go beyond is it, is it even possible to go beyond the imperial and the capitalistic divide between the North and South and reconnect Taiwan with an alternative South and South to South relationship? And can media rep representation of the South in Taiwan, whether it's propaganda or commercial stereotype, 
offer an alternative imaginary, imaginary about Southeast Asia. So I, uh, I probably don't have time to go through all the, 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 the route, uh, all the case study. I'll probably, I map out three routes that uh, more in a speculative uh, manner as a kind of a case study to open up more questions. But I probably only would be able to cover the first two. Uh, route one, Imperial Relay. I start from the colonial radio network uh, during the Japanese colonial period. And route two, it's cohort stand-in or replacement uh, with a case study from the US aided agricultural films sponsored by Nong Fu Hui and, uh, and local, local technocrats and filmmakers. Uh, the, the third, uh, which I don't have the time to talk about, is, 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 is talk about the kind of a global imaginary, imaginary about logistics from the, from the Vietnamese film and the, how Vietnamese film project Taiwan as a kind of a nodal point for Bitcoin and blockchain. And so route one, uh, route one, imperial relay. So I begin with imperial Japan's use of Taiwan as a relay point for trans-regional radio propaganda, which incorporated Taiwan as the empire's southern infrastructure and paved way to an alternative south-to-south sonic network. This south-to-south radio network, which was established after 1937, was used to broadcast in Minan dialect or Taiwanese Hokkien to the Fujian province or overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia, so as to counter the radio broadcast of the nationalist China. So from 1937 to 1941, the Japanese colonial government assembled an international team of radio broadcasters for the new report, for, for their news report in Cantonese, Hakka, Chinese Mandarin, Malay, Vietnamese, Pakalo in Philippines, English, and Dutch through its radio station in such as in Taipei, uh, in Zhongli in the middle and in Mingxiong, Jiayi. So this is like the three, three major radio station to broadcast news reports through Taiwan to relay the radio shortwave to the Southeast Asia, the three major ones in Taipei, uh, Zhongli and Jiayi. And from the first glance, the radio network resonated with the propaganda documentary film to the South Taiwan also, uh, in 1937, Nanjing, Taiwan, which put Taiwan with uh, in a liminal space, both inside and outside the imperial mapping of so-called the South or Nanyang. On the other hand, it is the South of the empire. Uh, on the one hand, Taiwan is itself, or is itself, was itself the South of the empire, but it is also the medium with which the Japanese empire to reach the South of the South, which is Southeast Asia. So this seemed to, so this case seems to replicate the cliche that Taiwan being the unsinkable ship or carrier under the rubric of industrializing Taiwan, agriculturalizing Southeast Asia, except that, in the, except that we found this guy called Prince Shangde, uh, uh, sorry, my Vietnamese. <laughs> of the royal family. Uh, so this Prince Achambe, uh, along with a couple of other Vietnamese revolutionaries, unsuccessfully tried to liberate Vietnam from the French colonial occupation. But during his exile and study in Japan, in Tokyo, uh, he was recruited by the Taiwanese uh, colonial government and lived in Taiwan between 1939 to, uh, to 1940 
where he produced a daily four-hour radio show in Vietnamese or Annam. Not only this, together with uh, Prince uh, Chandet are other anti-colonial or anti-French colonial Vietnamese revolutionaries based in Japan. They also use Taiwan as the, their temporary base and relay point or transport station to go back to Vietnam. So during, they, during these Vietnamese broadcasters stay in Taiwan, they helped the colonial government radio to, to produce and edit radio broadcasts in Vietnamese uh, to broadcast to the South. So they did so in exchange for Japan's recognition of Vietnam's independence. <clears throat> so this by now, uh, this by now obscure history of propaganda radio infrastructure point at least to two things. And first, uh, there have, might have been much more linguistic exposure to Vietnamese, Tagalog, and Malay among the Taiwanese radio users during, this, during the colonial period. And second, Taiwan's radio infrastructure served not only as a relay station for the imperial expansion to reach the South or the Southeast Asia, but also potentially become mobilized as a kind of a logistic infrastructure in Vietnamese liberation from the South, from the French colonialism. Uh, so can we, and then this case, can we, uh, uh, according to this case, I want to ask that can we find more case studies and so as to complicate this history or the legacy of the South, the South legacy. So I think this is one of the first uh, case I feel like uh, that lead me to question this, that Taiwan is always, uh, during the colonial period, Taiwan was always already in complicit with the imperial expansion of capitalism or colonial capitalism. And then even within this colonial network of media industry or propaganda industry of radio, that you found an alternative uh, network of South to South that connect Vietnamese anti-colonial liberal, uh, anti-colonialism to the Taiwanese radio station in, as I mentioned. Uh, how much time do I have for Aurora, sorry. Don't worry, you can go on, you can finish this part. Uh, so, uh, so, so this question of uh, finding a kind of a, a glimpses or moments of liberation from the control of media propaganda is leading to my second, sort of a second route to, which is Cold War. Uh, I now move to the Cold War uh, with a focus on the educational propaganda documentaries co-produced by Taiwan's agricultural uh, agency, Hui, or short Joint Commission of Rural Reconstruction, JCRR, and the American University field staff, AUFS, for the teaching of the world's cultural ecological zones at the college level in the, in the US. Uh, AUFS, uh, American University field staff, AUFS, uh, in short, uh, was a, quasi-government government, government organization with a wide overseas network of reporters, scholars, and writers who helped collect data and information for the reference of college-level education in social science and humanities. And as I published, uh, as I wrote elsewhere, uh, one of the earliest documentary film author in Taiwan, uh, Richard Yaoqi Chen, uh, Chen Yaoqi, uh, in here on the right, uh, was recruited by the AUFS and Hui to produce a series of documentary and propaganda films on the success of rice farming 
and land reform in Taiwan, of course, are under the USA. And again, from the initial reading of these documents, uh, from reading of the documents uh, accompanying these, these film series, of film footages, they were meant to be a showpiece for the success of the US engineer Green Revolution in Southeast Asia to rival the Communist Red Revolution. So in these films, Taiwan becomes a stand-in or a replacement for an imagined free uh, Southeast Asia, free meaning non-communist or anti-communist. Uh, as one of JCRR's or Dong Fuhui's technocrat from the US proclaimed, the agricultural success in rice farming in Taiwan could well be replicated or transferred to other Southeast Asian countries, such as the, as the Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, and Malaysia. Uh, countries uh, during the period, they were also given financial and technical support from the US agri agrarian expertise. So rep repetitive, repetitive evocation of the evidential power of documentary film and the pedagogical uses of the series shows a very unusual obsession with the scientific objectivity based on human vision or the visuality. Uh, this emphasis on human vision is linked to the mapping of the so-called cultural ecological area, uh, area as in area study, cultural and ecological area through a diagram in the, the guidebook to the film series. So the, in this diagram, the map, uh, the diagram map out five world area vertically from sea level to the mountaintop, each being indexed with a specific altitude. And the diagram uh, shows the, reveals a kind of confidence that a miniature ecological zone can, be, can stand in replace for the entire planet ecology. And Taiwan here uh, was not only uh, used as a sample to stand in a kind of cultural ecological zone in the planet, but also used as a kind of a replacement or stand in for the agricultural modernity for the entire Southeast Asia. Yet, if we look into, so again, from the first glance that we have this propaganda agenda behind this collaboration between local filmmaker Chen Yaoqi and Richard Chen and the US aided expertise of propaganda using agriculture as a kind of a modernization theories, uh, modernization success stories. Yet, if we look closely uh, into the subtle cinematic language mobilized in these propaganda films, we found the director, uh, Richard Yao-Chi Chen, was actually experimented, experimenting with a wide array of audiovisual critique of the reform of such KMT USA generated uh, land reform such as uh, just a quick example, uh, the kind of long shot and long take used in this film actually uh, has predated the cinematic novelty or cinematic experiment that was known by uh, become the hallmark in the Taiwanese new wave almost a decade earlier because Yao Chi Chen in this documentary co-produced by the US propaganda machine was actually doing a lot of the really stunning play with the audiovisual critique of the land reform or the land landscape in the 70s. And later on in the early 80s, in 80s Ho Xiaoxian, where they were doing all these like really novel uh, cinematic language. That was kind of a 10 years later. So uh, it's kind of a takeaway from this case is that, so the US treatment of Taiwan as a 
replacement of Southeast Asia uh, is a very interesting case because it echoes with an emerging film industry network that centered around a group of the Southeast Asia Chinese based in Malaysia and Singapore, uh, such as uh, Singaporean tycoon, uh, Singaporean filmmaker and tycoon Lao Wentao, Lao Wentao, who projected Taiwan as the anti-communist uh, stronghold. So uh, yet, so in, uh, in Singaporean made of uh, uh, Singaporean made of uh, films that we see this projection of Taiwan as urban, as, as the stand in for free China. But, but through, uh, during the same period, through US 80 filmmaking, we see this reverse, reverse replacement of not Taiwan as free China, but, but Taiwan as uh, free Southeast Asia. So it's interesting to see how a uh, different camps of anti-communist uh, film, film industry makers uh, are projecting Taiwan as a kind of replacement, uh, replacement of something else as urban, tai, urban China in, tai, in Taipei or as rural Southeast Asia. So this is the com, com, complicated our understanding of this Cold War align, alignment of uh, film languages. And uh, on the other hand, uh, it also kind of reveals that the fact that uh, even within the propaganda machines, such as the US, US aided uh, agricultural filmmaking uh, that was broadcasting for the success story of Green Revolution to counter the Red Revolution, that we still, even within these films, we find experimental language of new aesthetic forms and new genres and beyond the propaganda. So I think this is like two case study um, from Cold War and standing and, and, and the previous case of the media, radio infrastructure use for the cause of the anti-colonial period, uh, anti-colonial in Vietnam, I was hoped to highlight uh, these different routes because I'll skip the, the third case, but these routes point toward a kind of collective imaginary about and about of the Southeast Asia, may only possible Taiwan's liminal status as a medium. So Taiwan, not only as a, as a media product, but also as a medium itself among existing infrastructure of geopolitics as a relay station or as a stand-in for the empires. But for Taiwan, the media, media and milieu entanglement, I think also allows for an alternative genealogy and even a future imaginary beyond this normative and even hegemonic uh, boundary mapping of areas that was kind of a fix upon this really uh, fossilized understanding and imagination about what is the global north and what is the global south. And what, even within that dichotomized understanding of the north and south, what kind of creativity and what kind of novelty in terms of resistance and collaboration could be uh, to be born and reimagined. I think this is like kind of the uh, the direction I'm pushing uh, toward the film and media study within uh, through Taiwan, but connecting uh, to the south, the study of Southeast Asia, but also beyond beyond the kind of the cartomized understanding that was set by the Bandung Conference, uh, which Taiwan is always already late always in the middle of things, always excluded, included but excluded, uh, whether that's ASEAN or the Bandung um, legacy. Yeah, that's it, thank you. 
So thank you, Lawrence, uh, for your presentation. I like the way how our uh, presentations sort of all uh, link together. So you and Zhaonian obviously share a very interesting geopolitical angle. And uh, as for me, uh, with you, I also we also share a sort of historical angle, which uh, I'm going to talk about once. Uh, uh, Lawrence, you might want to end your share screen. Oh, so sorry. I can share mine. Yeah, yeah. no worries. Uh huh. Let me stop share. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can share mine. All right. Can everyone see? All right. So um, yeah, so the focus of my talk today uh, centers on the use of historical sources and comparative historical methods to conceptualize Taiwan's socioeconomic and political development, uh, particularly in the field of the social sciences. Uh, and I'll argue not only can this method of comparative historical analysis help to highlight the case relevance of Taiwan within general social science research, um, but uh, it can also help raise new important questions for scholars and students of Taiwan ourselves. All right, so let's jump in. So what is uh, comparative historical analysis? Um, a large umbrella of social science research that deals with, uh, first of all, comparative macro-structural phenomena, uh, such as economic development, democratization, state building, and also comparing between large units of analysis, like the nation state, economic classes, uh, or mass social movements. And second of all, it's also uh, interested in not just classifying and describing uh, these comparative differences across large units, uh, but it's also interested in examining uh, various uh, cause and effect uh, explanations of how these macro-structural phenomena came to be. And third of all, uh, it pays attention to historical sequencing uh, between these factors and takes seriously the unfolding of various uh, social, economic, political processes across time. Uh, so if you think about many of the classical texts in the social sciences, uh, Adam Smith, Marx, Weber, Tocqueville, they all employ in some shape or form uh, comparative historical methods or analytical frameworks. Uh, in the current social science literature, or at least in political science, uh, it's also fairly common for this type of research to be attached to this sort of regional studies tradition. Uh, so topics like comparative democratization in Europe, uh, state building in Latin America, uh, and so on have become fairly popular. Um, this particular method of macro comparative, causal, and historical research, as I hope to demonstrate today, uh, can be a critical way to incorporate Taiwan into mainstream social science research. Uh, first, uh, it helps to demonstrate why Taiwan matters as a case study uh, by addressing how questions like uh, Taiwan generated economic growth, uh, democratized elections, and developed welfare state policies, uh, Taiwan can in fact help to generate theory about macro structural phenomena uh, that's going to be useful for other generalists uh, working on these big social science puzzles. Uh, and this part about theory generation is important because it's not just about testing social science theories and hypotheses and seeing uh, whether they quote unquote work in a Taiwanese context, but it's more so about establishing a sort of 
uh, historically rich and rigorous depiction of Taiwan as a historical case study uh, that eventually other non-Taiwan scholars and comparative scholars uh, would find interest in learning from. Uh, second, this method can also, I argue, can also help to distinguish and position Taiwan in the field of comparative regional research. Uh, we, of course, know that Taiwan is quite different from South Korea, Japan, China, and other countries in the region. But it's important to find a way to use common theoretical vocabularies to encapsulate these differences. Uh, for example, we may want to know uh, whether the developmental state in Taiwan was indeed different from that of Japan's or South Korea's, um, but we also want to know the historical causes behind these differences and the long-term implications of these initial variations. And I think the great thing about uh, comparative historical analysis is that it helps to solve two sort of underlying existential problems that uh, Taiwan scholars often face. Uh, one is that we're always concerned uh, uh, with uh, preventing Taiwan from being lumped in with this sort of murky pool of the quote unquote East Asian experience. And, uh, and two, uh, we, we want to not get too attached to notions of so-called Taiwanese exceptionalism uh, as many of us, including me, uh, are prone to do, especially if we uh, are from Taiwan. And then turning this uh, exceptionalist notion into actual productive theoretical use. In the past, uh, Taiwan as a case study in comparative historical analysis really flourished in the uh, developmental state literature of the 1990s. Uh, due to Taiwan's economic success and worldwide renown as one of the Asian tigers, uh, comparative scholars were very interested in explaining why Taiwan state uh, was exceptional in fostering economic development and developing sound industrial policy. More often than not, however, uh, Taiwan, I think, has been characterized as sharing virtually the same developmental trajectory with that of Japan or South Korea, where a politically independent bureaucracy was the key in generating policy success that set it apart from other failed or inefficient examples of state intervention in the economy, say in Latin America, Africa, or the Middle East. And some of these scholars who have incorporated Taiwan explicitly into their comparative frameworks include the likes of Robert Wade, Peter Evans, Stephen Haggard, and uh, David Waldner. And of course, Taiwan, as part of the third wave of global democratization, uh, was also the target of much scholarly interest in the comparative democratization literature. So see Larry Diamond and, and others, though due to time constraints, I'll have to leave this for another time. Uh, beginning in the 2010s, however, many interesting new attempts to position Taiwan in comparative historical research has really emerged, and this is what I like to point out here. Um, first off, uh, the idea of a homogeneous East Asian developmental experience has really been challenged uh, through a more nuanced categorization and historical process tracing of Taiwan of the Taiwan case vis-a-vis uh, -vis other cases in East Asia. Uh, Joseph Wong's uh, 2011 uh, Betting on Biotech, for example, highlighted very different policy strategies that the central governments in Taiwan, South Korea, and Singapore 
took uh, in fostering entrepreneurship and innovation in the biotech industry. Uh, Taiwan, for example, relied on this uh, sprouting strategy in seeding many uh, smaller to mid-sized firms, uh, whereas South Korea invested in uh, national champions and Singapore sought after international firms. Uh, more recently, uh, Christian Looney's uh, recent 2020 book, Mobilizing for Development, compares state-led rural development in Taiwan, South Korea, and post-reform China, and highlights how varying strengths of farmer organizations in these three cases allowed for varying levels of state success in rural modernization, uh, with Taiwan's strong farmer organizations providing a, a much more compliant partner in the central bureaucracy's uh, policy efforts. Second, we also begin to see expanding areas of interest outside of the classical developmental state and democratization literature. Uh, Liu Huazhen's uh, 2015 book, Leverage of the Week, for example, looks at the different historical tra trajectories of social movement mobilization in environmental and labor arenas, uh, comparing between uh, movements in Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, Sheena Greeton's uh, 2016 Dictators and Their Secret Police focuses on how authoritarian leaders can design different institutions and methods of state coercion, choosing South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines as comparative examples. Third, we are also seeing more extensions along the historical horizon in these case studies with scholars paying more attention to earlier episodes of political development, uh, for example, beginning in the 1950s or even earlier uh, during the colonial period. Uh, Johnson Yeo's uh, 2015 Democracy, Equality and Corruption looked at how varying successes of land reform, uh, which Lawrence re uh, referred to in Taiwan, South Korea and the Philippines led to different levels of inequality which then generated disparate opportunities for political corruption some 30 to 60 odd years later. Uh, Ryo Matsuzaki's 2019 State Building by Imposition compares the Japanese colonial experience on Taiwan versus the American colonial project in the Philippines to illustrate how colonial states varied in their attempts to conduct land surveys and install public health measures. And finally, uh, Julia Strauss's 2020 book, uh, State Formation in China and Taiwan, looks to the Taiwan Strait in the early 1950s and show how the KMT and the CCP regimes undertook different bureaucratic strategies to implement land reform and impose political terror campaigns. Now, there is obviously a lot we can discuss in the Q&A, uh, but suffice to say that Taiwan as a critical case study uh, is getting its place under the sun in comparative historical research, particularly in the last five or six years. So uh, just to slip in my own research for a little bit, uh, while I also engage with these large historical comparisons across Taiwan, and with other case studies in my own research, I propose that we can also look to subnational and local differences within Taiwan uh, from a deep historical perspective. Uh, one of my current ongoing projects involve uh, documenting the geographical distribution of Taiwanese uh, township leaders under the colonial era, uh, as opposed to Japanese ones, uh, to think about the origins and the long-term effects of native uh, 
political power on the island. Uh, I know that some historians have already done this, but uh, yet to see this in social science research. Uh, by the way, big shout out to my RA Ling Yoming for helping me code this. Uh, another project also measures the stability of farmer organization leadership and membership composition uh, from the 1950s and 60s, as you can see in the bottom, uh, in order to demonstrate uh, KMT's grasp on rural society and political organizations during this earlier period of authoritarian rule. And by identifying and tracing these local patterns, I hope uh, can really help shine light on Taiwan's contemporary political outcomes, its current political geography, and help bring historical and theoretical nuance to a comparative historical analysis of Taiwan itself. So to just conclude, uh, I want to propose some future directions for developing Taiwan in comparative historical research. So first of all, we want to pay attention to case selection, right? So how do we select the comparative cases to compare Taiwan with? And this is sort of a, a, a thing I, I'm glad that Lawrence pointed out towards the second half of his presentation. So uh, should we sort of stick with the sort of natural comparative cases that we've seen the development studies literature mention? So with South Korea, Japan, or perhaps even China, or should we choose sort of unorthodox comparative cases beyond East Asia? And perhaps not just limiting ourselves to Southeast Asia, but also looking to other uh, cases in the global South. And second of all, uh, we want to think about continuity, right? Uh, so has there been a continuation of state power or elite networks throughout the different areas of you know, a, a really a wide array of different regime types throughout Taiwan's modern political history. Uh, what are the historical legacies, uh, such as uh, colonialism, white terror, ethnic tensions, land reform, uh, and, and are these uh, historical legacies still relevant for contemporary outcomes in politics or social economic development in Taiwan today? But other than continuity, we also might want to think about discontinuity. Uh, what are the important historical breaks and critical junctures that set Taiwan on alternative development paths from other case studies? So was it the 228 uh, massacre? Was it uh, uh, ROC's exit from the UN in 71? Was it the end of martial law? Or other more subtle discontinuities like uh, the uh, indigenization of the KMT regime in the early 70s or other sort of uh, geopolitical shifts that Zhongnian and uh, Lawrence have mentioned previously. And then we also want to ask, what are the obvious intended consequences, but also the unintended consequences of these critical historical breaks? And so with that, although my talk is very broad and can't really get into uh, more interesting details, uh, I hope that we can further this, this discussion in the Q&A section. So thank you for listening. All right, um, so Lev, ready to go? Good morning, everyone. Can everyone hear and see me okay? Great, so I'm gonna give a little bit of a different talk. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna talk so much about research. I'm gonna have a bit more of a meta discussion about the state of Taiwan studies. Uh, because this is a topic, if there's one topic Taiwan scholars love to talk about, it's Taiwan studies itself. 
Uh, and this is going to be based off of uh, a discussion that was uh, uh, really popular in 2017, uh, which was a uh, journal uh, a roundtable discussion in one of the first editions of the International Journal of Taiwan Studies that was uh, a golden age of Taiwan studies, a time for optimism or pessimism. Uh, and it was a paper that was uh, featuring comments from uh, professors Daphne Fell, Gunter Schubert, uh, Yvonne Chong, Ninia Ronsley, Karis Templeman, and I was a grad student at the time, but uh, I was the grad student voice in, in the paper. Um, and what this paper wanted to do was kind of assess where things were uh, in the global world of Taiwan studies, uh, how programs were developing, how we were assessing whether or not programs were successful. Uh, and, you know, the broad conclusions are kind of, Taiwan was in a good, good space as of 2017, or really 2016, when, when this discussion first started. And what I'm hoping to do uh, in, in this talk, the, the paper's online for anyone interested, uh, what I'm hoping to do in this talk is kind of reflect some of the, uh, on some of the broad uh, changes and status of some of these uh, main issues that uh, scholars in Taiwan studies are really concerned about in 2017. And uh, I, I'm going to propose a lot of kind of these questions for us to think about and also offer a few of my own reflections as someone who is uh, freshly PhD, but coming out of uh, a uh, political science uh, tradition while trying to also maintain a balance of Taiwan studies as well. So first is funding. And in, in the 2017 paper, you know, every, every professor commenting on Taiwan studies hits over and over and over again that funding, funding, funding is the biggest problem with Taiwan studies. And there's a couple different aspects of funding here to talk about. So first is, is you know, wh where is the money to study Taiwan and what is it for? Um, you know, for those of us who do field work, obviously we are constantly trying to find uh, opportunities that let us get to Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, this ranges from, you know, grad students in their first or second year who just need $1,000 here or $1,000 there to get a plane ticket uh, to junior faculty who are trying to do follow-up book work uh, to senior scholars who are trying to get to Taiwan to start new projects. Then, of course, there is funding for those uh, and this is more specifically for those who are not of uh, Taiwanese heritage, but those who are uh, trying to go to Taiwan to learn Mandarin so that they can engage in Taiwan studies. Uh, and then finally, there's uh, searches for money to do work on Taiwan that doesn't necessarily require you to go to Taiwan, like those who do survey work. Uh, and all of these are difficult to find, um, but I want to highlight, uh, there's this really great website for those who don't know. Uh, this is based off SOAS's Taiwan Studies program, but they have a really wonderful list uh, of uh, grants, scholarships, and funding opportunities for Taiwan studies. If you if you Google SOAS Taiwan studies funding, you'll be, you'll be able to find this very quickly. Um, but there's still kind of a bit more of a, of a bigger structural issue here when it comes to funding, and that is uh, permanent homes for Taiwan studies. Now, in the last year, we've seen uh, a total explosion of just really wonderful postdoc opportunities for Taiwan studies. This is just an example from UT Austin's new Taiwan studies program. Um, and, you know, it's good because uh, we need more institutionalization of Taiwan studies at universities. Uh, and, you know, as amazing as this new uh, funding opportunities uh, are, you know, I, I know a lot of this money comes to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Education. Uh, there was hesitation expressed in the 2017 paper from many of these professors. Uh, the hesitation comes from the longevity and whether or not the government funding like this is really sustainable. Uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of professors, especially Gunter Schubert and Karis Templeman, call for a more ref, uh, reflection on the Korea Foundation model uh, and how Korea Studies has become so successful in uh, outside of Korea because they have long-term, uh, clearly funded uh, Korea Studies programs, and that 
uh, quick fixes from the Taiwanese government, while extremely helpful and great starts, uh, need to be followed up with more uh, long-term minded programs. So in thinking about how uh, incredibly lucky we are that there are actual multiple Taiwan studies postdocs available, uh, I, th I think it's important for us as a field to, to continue pushing uh, for more uh, formal institutionalization because uh, in, as of the 2017 paper, one of the biggest reasons for Taiwan studies programs shutting down or just kind of becoming hollow is because they became reliant on one singular person uh, or they were never really able to grow beyond one person. Uh, so then it, um, there are questions of scholarship. So, so you know, what are we studying in, in global Taiwan studies? Um, and uh, how does this sort of vary by uh, whether you are studying Taiwan in Taiwan versus studying Taiwan from outside of Taiwan? Uh, and where does Taiwan studies work get published? Uh, I know that we're all incredibly grateful to have a, a uh, journal of Taiwan studies uh, that is published outside of Taiwan, that has really become home to a lot of uh, Taiwan scholars looking to uh, reach a more international audience uh, with their Taiwan studies work. Um, of course, there is a constant challenge, and I know all of us here on, as panelists, and especially those of us trained in political science, will constantly feel the push and pull about publishing in a disciplinary versus a regional studies journal. Uh, and I think this is something that Taiwan studies needs to be a bit more honest with itself with, especially when we consider, and I'll talk more about this later, training future Taiwan scholars about how do we engage with Taiwan studies while also making sure that we are setting ourselves up for academic success. Um, because I don't think it's a secret to say that if you are in the social sciences, your advisors will tell you not to, not to publish in a regional studies journal, uh, but to engage with a disciplinary journal. Uh, but of course, those of us who feel very passionate about Taiwan studies still want to stay engaged with Taiwan studies. And I think that's just a difficult conversation that uh, as a field, we need, to, we need to address a little bit more. Uh, I also want to shout out this really great project called the Taiwan Syllabus Project um, that the North American Taiwan Studies Association, specifically Diane Xie and John Liu, uh, have done just an amazing job of mapping every uh, Taiwan studies class that is offered in North America. Uh, and, and uh, who is teaching the class and what the class is. And they have the syllabi that you can request from them. So this, if you Google uh, Taiwan Syllabus Project, you can find this very easily, but this is a fantastic resource for trying to not only see what is, what, what is being taught uh, in Taiwan studies, but where and who and, and uh, how. Cooperation. Uh, so who is friends with Taiwan studies? Um, and uh, this is something that I raised a little bit uh, in my response, uh, but there always is a little bit of an elephant in the room when uh, Taiwan is uh, presented within China studies uh, and kind of the often uh, just geopolitical day-to-day -day complications of how we frame our research about being Taiwan studies, China studies, East Asia studies. Um, and uh, based off my own experience as a, as a grad student in political science, uh, I've actually found that there, there is far more support for studying Taiwan from places that we might not necessarily expect. Um, so for example, I've been really lucky to be funded by uh, places that study democracy uh, or peace and security. So, so, there's, so for example, at, uh, uh, at UC Irvine, there's a center for the study of democracy, there's a center for peace and security studies. Uh, and when I say I want to study Taiwan, they say that sounds like a great novel case. We don't hear that much about Taiwan. Uh, and so I think one of the uh, 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 recommendations going forward is just to think a little bit more creative, uh, creatively about 
uh, where Taiwan studies can find friends in the academy. Uh, and I also think now is a uh, time more than ever, uh, something that was definitely not nearly as true in 2017, uh, that there is uh, a, a reason for us to uh, try to reach out to other marginalized regional studies, uh, including Hong Kong studies, Tibetan studies, and Uyghur studies. I think all of us occupy this kind of uh, one foot in China studies, one foot out of China studies, uh, and all of us still wanting to make sure that we can both speak to China studies and yet maintain our own kind of autonomy within the academy. Uh, and I think uh, Taiwan is in a unique position to potentially lead that charge um, especially since our programs are growing, uh, I think, at a, just a much uh, faster rate than uh, these other programs are. Uh, education. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges in 2017 is not just a matter of research, but who wants to learn about Taiwan? Uh, how do we pitch Taiwan to undergrads? How do we pitch Taiwan to grad students? Um, how do we make studying Taiwan something that uh, you know, in, in North America, many people have never heard of Taiwan and are unsure where it is. Uh, how do we make it more accessible? Uh, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges, uh, and again, I'm sure every political scientist uh, has had to do this, uh, you know, in, in your intro to IR class, your intro to comparative politics class, you get like maybe one class to talk about Taiwan. And of that class, you get like, you know, 20 minutes to explain everything about Taiwan. Uh, and that's really hard, but that's kind of like our one hook about trying to get Taiwan interesting uh, to people. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, we need to think about how can we make Taiwan uh, more integratable into uh, different types of coursework uh, as, a, as a means to sort of Trojan horse our way into uh, making Taiwan a more uh, appealing topic for, for both undergrads and grads. And finally, recruitment. Uh, and this was something that I felt particularly passionate about because when I was a grad student uh, applying for my PhD, I was told by my advisor that studying Taiwan was career suicide and not to do it. Uh, and uh, I'm sure people who study Taiwan have at least once by some faculty member kind of gotten a bit of a, are you sure that's the case you want to do? Uh, because, uh, you know, I, they, they, they don't mean to dismiss Taiwan. They're just thinking in terms of, uh, you know, pragmatic uh, academic careers, uh, it's difficult, it's more difficult to sell Taiwan, uh, especially if you're a political scientist who's studying East Asia, they'll all tell you to go study China instead, uh, even though if that's just not what you're interested in studying. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, there's a couple of, of aspects that I'm concerned about. It is how do we encourage graduate students to study Taiwan, but how do we make sure that they stay engaged with Taiwan and that we're not uh, pushing everyone who wants to study Taiwan into a, a China center direction or pushing them too far away from Taiwan. Um, now, just a, a few closing thoughts, because um, I'll try to wrap up a little bit more quickly. Um, how do we consider the success of Taiwan studies going forward? Um, are we just looking at number of programs? Um, I think, again, you know, uh, I think that's definitely a good start. I think seeing the number of postdocs that now exist is certainly a sign of improvement. Um, but I don't think that should be the end of measuring success. I think we need to keep our eyes focused on the future and thinking about how we can grow beyond uh, just postdocs. Um, the duration of programs, I mean, the biggest challenge is uh, some of the oldest programs like at UT Austin or at SOAS have been going on for a long time, uh, but their sizes grow and wane. I think fortunately uh, we have good starts with, you know, for example, the University of Washington program that's been growing uh, successfully uh, um, largely in part to the work of, of, of James Lynn. 
Um, enrollment in Taiwanese programs, uh, again, this is just difficult because uh, class, classes are only sole uh, enrollable for undergrads. Um, events held, I think there's always a push for Taiwan uh, events to be held, but uh, I think a, a lot of the problem with Taiwan studies events is that they are often populated by Taiwan studies people, which is most certainly a good thing. Uh, but I really think for our Taiwan studies events, one of the things we need to consider going forward is how do we get more people who don't already want to participate in Taiwan studies to listen to Taiwan studies. Um, I love Taiwan studies events because everyone agrees Taiwan's great. Uh, and I don't have to spend any time justifying my case selection at Taiwan studies events. Uh, but I think uh, it's still important to try to bring people who might not be as familiar into our events to try to, again, that's, that's really, I think, how we, how we grow. Uh, and then again, I think it's a matter of trying to look at academic publications, because at the end of the day, that's what a lot of us as, academic, as academics are focused on. Uh, and how can we make Taiwan a part of academia, um, not just as kind of, as Kevin, I think very eloquently put, just another East Asia experience uh, and also avoiding Taiwanese exceptionalism. Uh, I'll stop there for now, but I hope this uh, inspires some questions and discussions. Um, and again, thank you, Kevin, for putting this really great panel together. All right, thank you, Lev, for giving us some hard truths uh, about uh, <laughs> Taiwan studies and the future and uh, a lot of these really interesting logistical problems that we can perhaps talk about later. Chingfang, uh, do you want to begin your comments? I know we're a little sure. running behind a little on schedule, but you know, do your thing and then we'll, uh, and then people, if you have questions, we, we're getting some questions in the Q&A box, uh, feel free to input it, your questions there and we'll try to incorporate it in our uh, discussion feedback. Sure. Um, thank you all for your wonderful presentations. Um, I really learned a lot. And although I know all, all of you for a long time, I think this is probably the first time we actually sit down and have a formal conversation on what we think about Taiwan studies as a, as a field. So what I'm going to do in my, in my response is I'm going to um, quickly summarize <clears throat> everyone's insight and put forward an observation and then uh, raise a question to the panel. So I think the question that everyone um, successfully tackled um, in the presentation is, what is the scholarly value of Taiwan? Of Taiwan? So for Zhang Yin, I think it's the, the answer is obvious. It's a ge geopolitical structure that affords Taiwan great value. And I think this is interesting because, you know, there is no place on earth uh, can escape the geopolitical structure, uh, not even the outer space, um, not on earth, you know, the outer space cannot escape the Cold War. So geopolitics is a very strong, a very a powerful framework uh, that gives Taiwan an advantage to share its experience. And especially to those who just started dealing with, dealing with China, as Johnny's case um, is po pointing out. So moving on to Lawrence, I think Lawrence's strategy is even more interesting. I enjoy the talk very much um, because what, what he argues is that uh, we should really turn the disadvantage to an advantage. So the fact that Taiwan is rejected um, by the international community, we're caught between um, superpowers is actually a good thing for academics because it offers us a unique angle to observe. So Taiwan may be a relay, Taiwan may be a stand-in or a space of exceptions, but um, this liminal positionality is exactly why interesting stuff will happen in Taiwan and why connections are drawn um, um, in Taiwan. So that is Taiwan as a medium. 
So um, Kevin's proposal to position Taiwan um, is also very interesting through methods um, by comparison. And as a comparativist myself, I share the um, scholarly taste. Um, the comparison is one of the best ways to gain insights and advance and generality. And Taiwan is, as Kevin pointed out, is not unfamiliar with this strategy. It contributed much um, to the studies of developmental state and democratization, both are very important the key to the strategy and make uh, you know appearances in bookland project and I, i'm really happy um, to see um, that kevin gave us a good syllabus of this and i think bookland projects um, are a good sign indicating substantial uh, resources and interests and 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 left um, has given us a, a very practical angle and evaluating the state of the field from the site of knowledge production. And I, I personally um, find this discussion very illuminating and very important because um, Taiwan study is also is only one part of the academic market. So as, as Love um, rightly pointed out, if there's no tenure professor supporting it, researching it, continuing it, um, no funding on it, where there's no job for junior scholars like us, um, the field will not exist. So in other words, I think if you want to know about the state of the field, maybe you should just look and see um, how um, recent graduates and um, talent studies are getting jobs, if they're getting jobs and how they're getting jobs. So, so throughout the, the conversation, my observation is this. So I actually sense um, a generational turn emerging in today's discussion, which is a mentality that my turn might be provisionally termed as um, Taiwan can help. And let me explain why. So, so in the late 2000s and early 2010s, um, I believe all of us would know um, uh, because that was the time uh, we, we started our grad school. Um, I think the mainstream mentality shared by scholars um, focusing on Taiwan was uh, this survival crisis. And I think this mo no most uh, notably uh, demonstrated by uh, Jonathan Sullivan's um, um, piece on China Quarterly um, in 2011, um, is Taiwan study in decline? So I think uh, what the scholars of that generation were thinking about at the time was that, are we being marginalized? Um, how do we stay relevant? Um, these are the questions that concern them. And I believe here I echo Zhang Yan, um, this might come from this geopolitical turn that China was actually on the rise at a time. And hence China study was on the rise and you know, rising very fast. And so scholarly uh, resources and tension reoriented and Taiwan was, was feeling you know, being pushed out. But today, what I'm sensing here is not the case is um, you know, some kind of practical optimism, right? So, so while we are still thinking about um, how Taiwan may stay relevant in a way, we're thinking about this question uh, without survival anxiety. So rather the key idea um, is to how to make a contribution by utilizing Taiwan's characteristics, which I want to point out is the question for all academics, not just specific to Taiwan studies scholars. So we do not start from a marginalized, even sometimes victimized um, position 
Um, but actually, now we're accepting the knowledge infrastructure as it is and focus on uh, the theoretical possibilities and the viable strategies to break through. So, so you all um, pointed to some strategy, turning the table by transforming um, singly advantage, that's one. Um, arguing for generality um, by identifying comparable cases uh, might be another one. So I say, I think our minds um, are on the right, in the right place, that the Taiwan can help mentality might in, will indeed help us and uh, help the world know better. So situating Taiwan in, in the world, engaging with possible allies are strategies that once worked and will continue to work. So the question that I would like to raise to the panel um, is um, to ask the panelists, how do we situate China in Taiwan studies? So intellectually, right, I, I see Kevin smiling. So intellectually, I think we've taken a very, sport, a very important step further in the past decade or so that we not only established ourselves as a field, so it's a small field as, as it is, but it is still an independent one. Um, not only we established this field, but also we've pro produced um, diverse and solid research in various disciplines um, of humanities and social sciences, as you just pointed out. Um, but as we're moving forward, I think uh, this is a task we cannot avoid. Um, how do we situate China in Taiwan studies? And there are multiple possibilities I'm thinking here. I'm just um, thinking out loud and you could uh, name a few more um, possibilities later. So is Taiwan and China two separate cases to be compared, perhaps using different time periods of Taiwan and China? Um, is Taiwan an effective lens to understand China as a China um, um, factor literature is trying to do in my understanding? Um, is China or is China one of the intellectual resources um, to, to, to understand Taiwan? Whereas uh, the other way around, perhaps Taiwan is creating intellectual value that will inform the world in which China is only a part. So there are multiple possibilities. Uh, I would like to um, hear your thoughts on this. And that would be my comment. I look forward to the QA session. All right, so thank you, Qingfang, for the amazing wrap up. So um, yeah, let's just get started on answering this question first, right? So how do we situate China in Taiwan studies? And uh, since I have the mic here, I'll, I'll just jump in with my own thoughts and other people can uh, obviously have, uh, will, will have really good comments. Um, so I think, yeah, so for someone who started off his PhD as uh, mostly interested in just China, not Taiwan necessarily. Um, I found it really useful to to really, towards the latter half of my PhD, to really spend a little bit more time engaging with Taiwan studies um, in in a more substantive manner. Um, and um, and for me, it's you know as a comparativist, uh, yeah, definitely it's you know interesting. Um, there are interesting uh, case comparisons across different time periods, sharing authoritarian history, histories, uh, party mobilization, state building, and that sort of thing. But obviously, very different cases, right? So, um, so but the job of the comparativist is to utilize all the resources you can to figure out, you know, general patterns uh, despite these differences. 
Um, and, and so, you know, from a practical standpoint, of course, like for scholars, you know, you know, learning Chinese is, and being familiar with Chinese resources is already a tall task. So, um, so in, in the near future, um, especially with, you know, doing field work in China being a, a much more insurmountable challenge for a lot of scholars of non-China descent, um, you know, Taiwan is going to be well positioned as a interesting case study that you know scholars can come to Taiwan and actually access the resources there, but um, but yeah, but but my initial reaction is just just that it's you know we just have. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this in very simplistic terms, right? That there are uh, things that could be said about these comparative cases across history, across different dimensions of political structures, institutions, and that sort of thing. But um, the very simplistic answer from Lifefront. But I, I assume other uh, panelists would have much more creative answers than that. Uh, I would love to jump in on the question if that's okay. Um, I, I, you know, it's even though Taiwan studies is most certainly growing, I think we all still often, I mean, sometimes get the feeling that, uh, you know, Taiwan studies is a uh, de facto independent study of, uh, but not a de jure independent study, and that we often find ourselves uh, kind of stuck in this uh, uh, difficult to completely separate and often sometimes uh, don't want to separate from China studies. And for good reason. I think there are certainly topics in Taiwan studies that are not China related. Uh, if you study democratization, uh, then uh, the PRC is probably not uh, relevant. Um, if you study uh, indigenous Taiwanese studies, uh, the PRC is probably not particularly relevant. Uh, and there's plenty of PRC topics that are not relevant to Taiwan. Uh, and that's okay. At the same time, there's plenty of topics in Taiwan studies that are relevant to the PRC. Uh, if you study Taiwan during the authoritarian uh, era, most certainly relevant to compare to the PRC. Uh, if you study cross-strait relations, it's most certainly relevant to talk about the PRC. I think it's just a matter of, uh, uh, it matters on the question and it matters on the methodology. Um, but they're not, I don't think that Taiwan studies, uh, every topic will be completely separate from China studies. Uh, and I think that's okay. I think it's just a matter of being honest with uh, what is definitely Taiwan studies and, and what can speak to China studies. And it is good to speak to China studies. Like I think uh, there's an inclination for a lot of Taiwan scholars and I most certainly have had my moments of this where it's like, I, I am not China studies, I am Taiwan studies. Uh, but but like we're not geopolitics. Like we don't have to we don't have to have this like uh, desire to to not speak to other parts of academia. I think it's incredibly important actually uh, that Taiwan studies stay connected to China studies as a means to um, you know uh, both be a part of you know broader academic conversations, but also uh, to try to um, uh, help kind of foster this more um, academic and open environment and dialogue between the two uh, departments. Um, and, uh, you know, also people wear both hats, like it's okay to be a Taiwan studies person and a China studies person, like there, there's, there are no pejoratives or overly positives with, with, with studying the cases you study. Um, it's just a matter of, of what's the question and what's the method. Lawrence or Etonian, do you want to jump in? All right, so, uh... This question is uh, interesting. How to situate China uh, in Taiwan studies? Uh, it seems to me that my answer would be straightforward. Okay. 
uh, basically, uh, I would tend to treat China just as another independent variable of for Taiwan studies, uh, because I would tend to uh, basically follow the logic of geopolitical perspective, uh, basically to uh, basically in the context of China's rise, uh, China basically have more and more stronger and stronger influence on not only for Taiwan, but also to many other places around the world. Okay, so now we not only have so-called China study, but also have the so-called uh, China impact studies. What's the difference? Uh, basically, China study. Uh, we, uh, for in terms of China studies, we tend to treat China as dependent variable. On the other hand, uh, uh, in terms of uh, China impact studies, we tend to treat China as independent variable. Okay, so that's the difference. And uh, in the context of China's rise, uh, just as I mentioned, I believe Taiwan would be one of the important cases uh, for China impact studies. So uh, in this sense, I think that would be fair to uh, treat China as uh, another important independent variable. Of course, uh, one of uh, the most important external structural factors for Taiwan studies. Uh, that's my point. Thank you. So, Lawrence, before you jump in, because we're slightly running out of time, I want to sort of collapse different questions together. And since you talked a lot about Southeast Asia, we I think we've gotten questions on how to, in, in, aside from the China question, right, how do we situate Taiwan with other area studies traditions? So we have a question about uh, connecting Taiwan with the global south in Southeast Asia, in particular, uh, you know, and with the increase of uh, Southeast Asian migrants in Taiwan in the last few decades, we have a sort of increasing interest in looking at the connection between Taiwan and South Asia. And also maybe uh, throwing it back to Lev also, how do we situate Hong Kong in Taiwan studies? As I know, you've worked a lot on Hong Kong as well. So um, yeah, so I'm sorry we have to sort of collapse all these questions together, but you know, we, uh, I think we're running slightly over time. So we'll just spend next couple of minutes trying to get as many questions as we can. Okay, so, so just quickly, I think there's a couple of questions that can uh, sort of like touch upon together. Is one is like, how do we situate China in relation to Taiwan? And also, particularly in my own concern, how to relate that to the, to the South. And for that kind of knowledge project, known as the, the Bandung, inspired by the Bandung, Confer Bandung Conference or the Inter-Asia critique of the Global North, I think China was just there, is just there, and is going to be there for uh, future, especially that legacy of the global self discourse from Bandung was recycled into the Belt and Road rhetoric of diplom diplomacy, and I think the way the the, the way to the two cases I'm, I was just showing is to is that uh, by activating more and more alternative historical cases in history, we might be able to engage with that knowledge project and of whether that's inter-Asia referencing or inter-Asian media network or infrastructure, and we might be able to excavate and dig out an alternative historiography. That's one thing. But on the other hand, in the current stage, which is the third case I didn't get to share is about uh, how this new initiative about digital, digital platform, Bitcoin, blockchain, and, and 
how co collaborated with the Belt and Road Initiative in Southeast Asia with the ASEAN market also generate a new way from Southeast Asia imagination locally from Southeast Asia. And I think for my own uh, vision, I think it is also time for Taiwanese, uh, Taiwanese film and media scholar, not just to think about how uh, film and media represent the empire, uh, represent Southeast Asia through the empire, but also to look into, especially the recent rise of South Asia uh, locally produced uh, film and media pro products and how uh, how they project Taiwan in relation to uh, to China. And I think uh, that's the third case I didn't get to share, uh, which is a film about how Vietnamese local locals are imagining a kind of blockchain and Bitcoin uh, network outside China, but through Taipei, which is kind of weird because Taipei was never the the, the center or the hub for that kind of a high finance platform. So which is a, a, a symptom by itself that produced locally by Vietnamese. So I think that's a kind of a next step I would suggest. Uh, in terms of integrating Hong Kong studies into Taiwan studies, uh, I mean, that's certainly central to what my own work uh, looks at. Um, I think we're going to see an entirely renewed uh, interest in comparing Taiwan and Hong Kong. I think traditionally the main comparisons for Taiwan have been Taiwan, China, Taiwan, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. But in light of 2019, uh, the anti-extradition protests and national security law, uh, the prominence that Hong Kong has become as a domestic issue in Taiwan. Uh, I am anticipating that in the next uh, few years, we're going to see a uh, pretty much an explosion of, of Taiwan, Hong Kong study, comparative studies, um, both from Hong Kong studies and Taiwan studies. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think uh, I, I mentioned this briefly, but I really think it is a, a cool moment that Taiwan, stu Taiwan studies could be a part of uh, because Hong Kong studies is increasingly growing in spite of uh, the negative news coming out of uh, Hong Kong, Hong Kong as a as a study uh, and as a uh, subfield is growing. So the Society for Hong Kong Studies just had their uh, uh, annual conference. It was a great success. Uh, and I think it would be really cool. Uh, if Taiwan studies and Hong Kong studies uh, can collaborate in the future to try to speak to each other's research. Uh, and I think as Hong Kong and Taiwan become compared more, I think we're just going to find more and more cool comparisons to be found between the two historically, both from uh, colonial and uh, decolonial perspectives, uh, political development in ways that we wouldn't have thought of before. Um, so I think uh, Hong Kong studies is quickly becoming more integrated with Taiwan studies. And I think uh, we're going to see some cool results of that going forward. All right, so uh, we have a question from uh, Chen Gongchen from the University of Maryland. Uh, his question is, uh, is the, uh, what are some of the uh, other research topics beyond uh, some of the stuff we talked about today uh, that, uh, that people feel uh, haven't, uh, haven't, been, uh, haven't received enough attention in Taiwan studies? Are there other blind spots or other new fields that we, we should pay attention to? Uh, any of the participants can jump in. Or maybe Zhao Nian. All right, actually, Gongchen is one of my good friends for over 20 years. <laughs> so actually, we may have a talk uh, later uh, offline to talk about this. However, uh, I have a short response about uh, his question. Uh, uh, this question, let me see. One is about it, 
a comparison between uh, Taiwan studies and uh, political science, uh, Western academic community. I think in terms of methodology, I don't think it's uh, easy to do comparison uh, because Taiwan studies uh, include a lot of different disciplines. And basically uh, we know different disciplines require different methodologies. So I don't think it's an easy answer, an easy question to answer. So basically I don't have any smart answer to this. And basically, uh, let me see other question here is yeah, some, uh, the coverage some, like, of Taiwan study. Uh, any, any sort of research topics that you ha we, ha we haven't seen a lot of people talk about. Um, uh, yeah, I think basically the status of Taiwan studies is uh, keeping changing. Uh, uh, following uh, my logic of geopolitical perspective, uh, we could see that actually geopolitical situation uh, keep changing all the time. Okay, so uh, for example, uh, uh, the United States uh, geopolitical policy, United States China policy, actually uh, now we basically meet a historical turning point, right? So under this situation, I uh, would say uh, the direction of Taiwan studies uh, basically to follow the direction of geopolitical changes. So here, actually we could see Taiwan basically caught in attention between China and United States. So maybe we may try to follow uh, this check to see any new topics uh, important. Uh, for example, recently we have vaccine issue right, under the, uh, during the uh, pandemic. Okay, so the production and distribution of the vaccine uh, would be one of the topic uh, that is important around the world. Uh, but for Taiwan, basically I, I was thinking it's not only a vaccine issue, but also geopolitical issue as well. Okay, so I believe there will be some new direction following the logic of geopolitical changes. All right, so uh, if none of the other panelists want to answer, um, uh, let me just, just finish off with, I think, one sort of big question. I'm collapsing two questions. So from an um, uh, old friend, uh, Mark McConaughey, uh, currently at National Seattle University, and uh, also from Maggie Lewis. Um, you know, this, and, and really the question is about um, how do we, how does Taiwan studies position itself with China in this current geopolitical environment? So as US-China in tensions increase, how not to, uh, so you have maybe on the one front, you can, uh, think about not having Taiwan studies as be, as being seen in contrast to China studies, and, and also, um, you know, does Taiwan studies have to have a critical or even oppositional relationship to China or other ideas of China, right? The idea of Zhonghua or like the Chinese civilization, right? So um, it's it's really interesting because obviously there are a lot of shared cultural similarities and language and 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 a lot of these cultural resources. But how do we position ourselves? I, I guess the at the end of the day uh, with uh, China uh, under this you know current uh, geopolitical environment. So um, uh, Lawrence Lev. Uh, uh, so yeah, I think I think I can answer, kind of answer or, or uh, both uh, Mark's question and hi Mark and Bo and Bo question about uh, this is a different representation. 
uh, is together. It's actually, it's, it doesn't have to be oppositional, especially in my, especially in my case about, um, for example, in the projection of uh, the, the projection of Taiwan is either as urban or as rural by the US aided cinema or by the, the Singaporean commercial cinema, that question, that difference of representation of rural or urban, a different version has to do with the, how the Southeast Asian Chinese project Zhonghua through Hong Kong because the Singaporean uh, filmmaker was trying to project Taiwan as an urban space, but to be sold, that film product to be sold to urban Hong Kong and where where is more of the urban audiences. So we're still these overseas or the Malaysian Chinese or Singaporean Chinese filmmaking, they're projecting Zhonghua as a kind of an urban Taipei, but to, but to sell that image as a free China to Hong Kong audiences. So that's the kind of thing. And on the other hand, that uh, because, because um, the US propaganda filmmaking was trying to project uh, Taiwan as a showpiece of the Green Revolution, as it has to continue that urban reform project that started out before 1949, which is China, which is Zhonghua. That kind of land reform agenda must be re-represented -re in post-war film production in Taiwan to be able to sell to Southeast Asia film markets or to, to be able to propagate it or to sell their image of successful agrarian modernity to Southeast Asia. And I think there is a kind of a, Zhonghua is still there, is always there. And in this propaganda project, it, the seller, the filmmaker, the artist, tailor make all these projects in relation to Zhonghua through Taiwan, but also project that market either to Hong Kong or to Thailand or to Southeast Asia. So I think this is my way of uh, answering both the Zhonghua question and the Hong Kong Southeast Asian question. Uh, I'll just say very quickly on the on the contemporary geopolitics question. Um, uh, Maggie, I think you bring up a great point about uh, how um, with so many people coming to Taiwan for language learning, it definitely presents an opportunity for, for more people to, to notice and study Taiwan. Um, and that uh, there most certainly uh, is good reason to try to not present us as uh, in opposition, though, to, to China studies. Um, interestingly, from from uh, from the 2017 piece, Daphne Fell wrote that one of the uh, ways that he he finds success in Taiwan studies was to try to make Taiwan studies seem as nonpartisan as possible. Um, and he also writes anecdotally how incredibly difficult that is. Because if you invite one speaker who happens to have a certain political affiliation, people will paint Taiwan studies as, oh, well, they're all just a bunch of green supporters. Or if you invite Ma Ying like, oh, Taiwan studies is a bunch of sellouts, they're not pro-Taiwan. Uh, and uh, how, uh, given, given the, the you know, increased tension between the US and China, um, I just, I have to anticipate that that's gonna be very difficult for Taiwan studies to navigate. Um, about trying to maintain sort of uh, scholarly integrity and for us not to be seen uh, as uh, in, 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 um, in opposition to any sort of China-related uh, research. But I think that's definitely something we should be cognizant of in the future. 
All right. On that note, we're already way over time. Uh, but before we go, uh, I just want to give a big thanks to the Fairbank Center, uh, in particular, Mark Grady, who's working behind the scenes uh, as the event coordinator uh, for making things run very smoothly today, and for Dan Murphy for setting all this in motion. So again, uh, thank you all for participating, and we hope you to see you all in events in the future. All right. Stay safe. Uh, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so Great much. discussion. Thank you.